working on page nine of talk two, getting at the heart of the matter. All right, I am going to describe a conversation. Let's just say it's, if you're a guy, the guy's Jonathan. If you're a gal, her name is Janet. And you're sitting across from each other and you're talking with each other about life. You talk about what they did last week, about their marriage, about their job, about the Razorback game. You just talk about life together. And interestingly, if I, as a counselor, if I had a video of your conversation I, and I watched it from beginning to end, I would say Jonathan or Janet was hiding. Now you say to me, what do you mean? What do you mean they're hiding behind the circumstances of their life? Well, if, if, as I watched the video, what I saw is they described a lot of what was happening in their life, but they didn't tell you at all how they're doing. If I were to sit there, I, I wouldn't ask, how's your job? What are you doing this weekend? What did you think about the big game? Instead, I would ask, what are you worshiping? What are you scared of? What do you desire or hope for? What does your life revolve around? What matters to you most? Now, most of us, I engage in small talk every day. You know, we, we know what it's like to talk about the little things in life, to make banter with one another. That's typical of our relationships. But some of those questions I just laid out, those heart-oriented questions, I would say, are the questions that go after the deeper things in life. And if I asked Jonathan or Janet those questions, they would be startled. They would go, whoa, hold on. <laughs> you want to know what I'm worshiping? You want to know my deepest fears? You know what, what, what's the war within myself right now? We don't normally go there. Let's stick with the Razorback game. <laughs> A lot of people are startled by those kinds of questions. Because why are, why are they? Because they're more intrusive questions. They don't stay at the superficial in life. They reach in and they go after some of the more deeper motivations and issues in a person's life. Well, what I want to do in this coming talk is I want to help you think about how do you get beyond the superficial and go after people's hearts? What does it look like to, to go beyond what are, for many of us, terminally superficial relationships? Relationships that live at, at a very surface level much of life and build a kind of depth in your relationships that changes the nature of the relationship. What does that look like? I want you to just think about the conversations that you had this past week. How many of them dwelled at more at this surface level, or how many of them got to really a heart level, where the person was willing to offer you the deeper things in life, the things that they wrestle with, the things that they hope for, the things that they desire, the things that they fear, the things that they ultimately worship. Not many of our conversations are willing to go there. And yet, to, to, to faithfully minister to others, we need to be willing to go beyond the superficial details and circumstances of life and dig down into people's hearts as we're ministering to them. Now, as you can see from the direction that we're headed, fundamental to what we're talking about is understanding what Scripture says in terms of the heart. I want to take a moment and define what we're talking about. And I'm not talking about, obviously, a physical heart, the heart that's beating within you right now, pumping blood through your system, but rather the spiritual heart that's within you. The heart's the most central and core part of who we are. In several places in Scripture, the Hebrew and Greek words describe being at the center of something. I have a friend who would often label this, the heart is actually the command center for who we are. We understand from Luke 6 and Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or as I would say, not just speaks. Out of the overflow of the heart, we think, we say, we do, we feel, we live. If the heart is the center of who we are and is the command center, everything comes from it. Another way to describe our heart is the inner person. Scripture often divides human beings into two parts, the outer and inner being. The outer person is our physical self, 
the inner person is our spiritual self. When the biblical authors want to describe the inner being, they often use the term heart. We come to know humanity's deepest struggles by looking at their hearts. We see the importance of the heart when we look at verses like Proverbs 4, 23. Above all else, guard your heart, for it's the wellspring of life. So just as a wellspring is a source of water, so also the heart is the source or fountain from which all of life springs forth. Solomon wants to pro- us to protect our hearts because it's the fountainhead from which life springs forth. Now, if somebody came to you and said, hey, I want to know the real you. You ever had someone say something like that? What I think they're referring to is your heart, the thing that I'm describing, the, 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 the place in you that we come to see what you're worshiping, what you're desiring, what you're hoping for, and what you're fearing. So the essential core of who you are, Solomon writes, as, a water reflects a, 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 as water reflects a face, so a man's heart reflects the man. Much like water that reflects the back of the, reflects back the image of one's face, to really get to know someone, their character and who they are, you need to know their heart. So think about your own experiences. To really get to know someone you got to get beyond the basic mundane facts of their life. So I could tell you, you know, I, I grew up in New Jersey. I was born in 1969. I, I graduated with a degree in biology, undergraduate. I'm, I'm a soccer dad, so I'm a coach on the sidelines almost every Saturday through the fall and the spring. Or I could tell you, you know, I'm greedy for my wife's time because I feel like my kids suck up a lot of her time. Or... I, I might sound humble, but I really wrestle with self-idolatry. Or there's a lot of moments in the middle of conflict, I'm ruled by my pride. Well, those last three statements told you a lot more about who I am. The first few were just simply some facts about my life. But they didn't give you access to some of the deeper issues of who I am. Now, to be clear, facts are not useless, and some facts are more useful than others. So knowing the fact that someone has been abused is much more important than knowing their favorite color. But the best facts are merely the beginning of a breadcrumb trail we can use as we seek to desire to draw out the purposes and motivations of someone's heart. Now you see there, I listed there Luke chapter 6. This is what Jesus says to us. He says, No good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart the mouth speaks. Verse 45 shows us that Jesus' primary point here is to give us not a botany lesson, but to teach us how human beings work. And the word picture here is that of a tree. And he's using the tree to help us understand how do human beings function. A couple of principles uh, you see there that I want to lay out for you. First, you see there the principle of recognition. You can learn a lot about a person's life by looking at the fruit of their life. Verse 43, if, if the tree is good and healthy, it won't bear bad fruit. Or if the tree is bad and unhealthy, it won't produce good fruit. Then look there at verse 44. You see the principle of recognition. We recognize the health of the tree by its fruit. Jesus tells us there's actually a relationship between the quality of the fruit and the quality of the tree. In verse 45, Jesus tells his audience, and tells us what he's driving at. You come to understand a person by looking at the overall fruit of their life. Now, we got to answer the question of what does fruit mean? What does Jesus mean when he uses this word picture to describe what fruit is? Well, it can be a variety of things. For example, in this text, he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So it's clearly words based on what these texts tell us, 
But it can be a lot of other things. It could be our thoughts, our plans, our feelings, our choices, our actions, our relational interactions, our hopes, our dreams. Or to be more specific, it could be our financial choices, our parenting, the quality or state of our marriage, the quality or state of our relationships, feelings of sorrow or confusion or anger or joy, our discipline or lack of discipline in doing devotionals, our attendance or lack of attendance in church and prayer, and so on and so on and so on. Those are just examples of what the fruit of our life is or could be. Number two, you see there. So where does all the fruit come from? The overflow of the heart. Jesus made us and knows us perfectly and says fruit comes from what's in our hearts. Verse 45, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We might tend to think we have control over our words and actions, and it's purely cognitive. Your words and your choice of words and your instinctual words actually have root, and they have root in your heart. Have you ever heard someone say something like, oh, I'm sorry, that came out of nowhere, or oh, I didn't really mean what I said. Actually, they're wrong. It doesn't come out of nowhere. In fact, they did mean what they said, and in fact, it came from their hearts. Principle number three, we can store up good and bad fruit in our hearts. Now, we know from the Bible that we are born into sin and nobody is righteous. And as we noted earlier, only God can finally change our hearts. But this passage does seem to indicate that just as we are culpable for our hearts, we can also play a part in seeking to change our hearts. In verse 45, you notice that good is stored up in the good man's heart, or evil is stored up in the evil man's heart. By this verse alone, we don't know how but somehow there's an accumulation and storing up taking place of the good and the evil in our own hearts. So Jesus also indicates our participation in Matthew 26. What does he say when he rebukes the Pharisees? He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee! First clean the inside of the cup, and plate that the outside may be clean. And notice that. First clean the inside of the cup and plate. He's giving them responsibility to actually do some of the cleaning. So you might wonder, what does it look like to store up things in my heart? Well, an easy positive example to think about is our own spiritual disciplines, our own time in the Word. As we mentioned before, the consistency or lack thereof of your time in the Word will show itself as the fruit of your heart. And if you are consistent in reading and understanding and applying God's Word, you are trusting God to store up good in your heart. So when you hit those hard moments in life and you're not sure what to draw on, what matters a lot is what have you stored up in your heart? Have you been in the Word so that when you hit those hard moments, you've got something to draw on? Because don't you know that the evil one wants to attack you? And how do armies survive in a fortress? It's not just when another army basically surrounds them for them to survive the battle at that moment, but the kind of provisions they've made will help them endure in the battle. It's the same thing for your heart. What have you stored up in your heart? What is the psalmist say in 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. There you have it right there. <laughs> now, if you spent a lifetime pursuing comfort and ease, what's going to be the overflow? Well, everything you do, everything you say, everything you think is going to through, th go through that filter. Your words, how you spend your time, your thoughts, your schedule, it's all going to reflect the primacy of wanting comfort and ease. So the question for you then is, what are you storing up? What are you putting in your heart? Because that's going to make a big difference on how you survive in this Christian life. Number four, we often find ourselves addressing the fruit 
but not the root of the tree. Well, why does this matter for our relationships? Oftentimes, we're tempted to address the fruit of a person's life and not the heart. You know this if you've ever been a parent. You know how easy the temptation is to basically chide your children about their behavior and not do the work of getting into their hearts. Or you know this in terms of communication. You know, I as a pastor, I sit with a lot of couples who are struggling with their marriage. I I can pull out of my hat of techniques a better way to communicate with a spouse and offer that to a husband who's struggling with his wife. And yet, if I don't deal with the bitterness in his heart, what's going to happen next week? You know, those bad words are going to come out yet again. Now, uh, Blake just gave out instruments in Redeemer's hands. Paul Tripp has a, a wonderful illustration we talks about in that book about the, the tree. And he talks about showing up in his front yard and having a bushel of apples and stapling the apples to the tree. <laughs> and his wife looking at him and think, you're crazy. <laughs> Why are you stapling, apple, stapling apples to a tree? Well, we do a lot of that. We, we don't deal with our hearts. We just simply think if we change our behavior, then everything's going to be okay. But it's not okay. Lasting change comes through the pathway of the heart, not just simply by changing our behavior. You know, when a parent focuses on the fruit of a child's life, he's only addressing the behaviors He's not going to see the kind of change they want to substantially see in their life. Now, have you you ever had bamboo in your yard? Anybody had bamboo in your yard? May not be as common in this part of the country. You know, it's funny how bamboo works. You might see shoots of a bamboo, say, in a different part of your yard, say 10 or 15 feet away. And yet, if you know what I'm going to talk about, if you just simply went and pulled out the, the weeds of the bamboo 10 or 15 feet away, is the problem going to go away? No. Why is that? Because bamboo tends to work underground. It's going to grow along the ground and shoot up 15 feet away. And yet, in order to king, kill the bamboo, you have to go to the roots of where it started and kill it right there. You can pull up weeds of bamboo all over your yard all day. But if you don't get to the root of it, you're not going to ultimately kill the problem. The same thing with your heart. You can spend all day changing your behavior. (laughs) I can give you all kinds of techniques if you're husband or wife struggling in your marriage to make you communicate better, more efficiently, more lovingly. And yet, if I don't help you change the nature of your heart, nothing's going to change. And honestly, I understand this now for selfish motives because I don't want them showing up in my office again next week. (laughs) If I simply give them behavioral techniques, guess what? They'll be calling me next Monday all over again. And the same thing the next Monday and the next Monday. How do I get them out of my office? (laughs) We go after their hearts. How do I teach them to change in their own life? We go after their hearts and teach them not to simply change each other's behavior, but actually help each other understand what's going on within their hearts. Well, you see there under the heading, the heart is an uh, idle factory. One of the most fundamental problems is simultaneously our only solution. Who or what are we worshiping? We're, we are never worship neutral. In the Bible, if you're worshiping anything but God alone... God must be the object of worship. Anything other than God is an idol. We know this from the first and second commandments. Explicitly forbid the worship of anyone or anything else apart from God alone. In the Old Testament in particular, we see that the objects of idol worship are inanimate objects. And yet we walk around with all kinds of idolatry within our hearts. We're worshiping something. The the question is, what are we worshiping? What kind of idols have we wrapped our lives around? What God cares about is why, the, why and what we're worshiping. He cares about our hearts, and He cares about the fact that we're worshiping Him. 
Now you see there Ezekiel 14 in your handout. You'll notice there's no reference to a particular object, but that the idol actually resides in our hearts. This is Ezekiel 14. Some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down in front of me. Then the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts and put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. Should I let them inquire of me at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, when any of the Israelites set up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer them myself in keeping with their great idolatry. I will do this to recapture the hearts of the people of Israel who have all deserted me for their idols. Therefore, say to the people of Israel, this is what the, the Lord, sovereign Lord says, repent, turn from your idols and renounce all your detestable practices. And then you see there, verse 7, when any of the Israelites or any foreigner residing in Israel separates themselves from me and sets up idols in their hearts and put a wicked stumbling block before their faces and then go to the prophet to inquire of me, I, the Lord, will answer them myself. So let's figure out what's going on here. What's the context of these verses? The elders of Israel are coming to God to inquire. And you see there in verse 2, you, you see the phrase, idols of the heart. Idol, we just described what it is. It's anything that we worship that is not God, anything that we give allegiance to aside from the Lord. But interestingly, that phrase, in the heart, idols in the heart, what are we talking about? It shows that the idol is foundational to how we operate. It, it's a part of the command center. It, it, it is ordering things in our life. It is, it is ordering how we live our life. Now consider that phrase, put wicked stumbling blocks before their faces. What does that mean? Well, the idols are stumbling blocks. They block our ability to see God. Just as if you put a hand in front of your face. That's the imagery here. If, if I put a hand in front of my face, I no longer can see the Lord. Well, that's what an idol is doing. It's getting in the way of me being able to clearly see God and know God. So why does God only answer in keeping with their idolatry? Well, look what he says there in verse 5. I will do this to recapture their hearts of the people of Israel. God deals with their idolatry because he knows the idolatry rules their hearts. God wants to recapture their hearts. That's the way he changes people. Idolatry reveals who or what we worship, what really rules your heart, and what are your idols. Now, I just want you to take a moment and think about it for yourself. What is my idolatry? What rules my life? What are the things that compete for my worship of God? If you got a pen, just write one or two things down. What I want you to do is take time today to figure out how they have been stumbling blocks before your face. How they have been idols that have influenced you such that they now get in the way of your worship of the Lord. Idols are dangerous. They're blinding. They blind us from seeing God and knowing Him and understanding Him and loving Him. And that's why repenting of our idolatry and growing to understand what they are, turning from them, matters for us to be able to live a faithful Christian life. There, it's dangerous to, to, to live and not deal with our idols. Calvin often said, our hearts are idol factories. We keep producing idols in our life, and so therefore we have to deal with it because our hearts are constantly churning out those idols. God is to be first and foremost priority in our life, and idols are anything that stands in the place of God. Now, He's given us so many good gifts, relationships, a church, work, money, 
hopes, dreams, plans, but any of these things can be turned into an idol. Any of these things can be turned into something that takes on a greater weight and importance than it deserves. Now, I often use this word picture. If, if I were to go through your life and pretend it was a store and I had price tags and I could put a price tag on everything in your life, including your hopes and dreams and fears, and, and, and certain things would actually be overpriced, you give them more importance than they deserve. And certain things would actually be underpriced. They're not as important to you than they should be. And yet if God could see the price tags and relabel them, he would label them according to the proper weight and importance that they deserve. Well, what have you turned into idols? What, what, has, a value, what has been overvalued in a way that it shouldn't be? And that you need actually to bring the price down. <laughs> or what are the things that the Lord wants you to prioritize that you're undervaluing, you should need to bring the price back up and assign a proper weight and importance to things that actually fit with how God sees things rather than how you see things. Well, that, that last part there, if you want to flip over to the... Oh, sorry, in this last part on the page, you see getting to know each other's hearts. What, what are we thinking about here in terms of getting to know each other's hearts? Well, what, what we want to do is we want to know and see another person's heart by drawing them out. Proverbs 20, verse 5. The purposes of a man's heart are deep waters. A man of understanding draws them out. So the superficial data of a person's life is not, uh, 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 not easy to, is easier to access. And yet the, the deeper things of the heart the purposes, desires, and motivations take a bit more work to draw out. And so, therefore, we ask them things. We inquire about things. We press into their life in order to gain access to their heart and to grow in a, in a level of depth of understanding. I think the heart is a depth variable. When you come to understand someone's heart, you come to understand some of the deeper things in their life. That's why I think this whole category is helpful for us to understand other people. So some of the questions I gave you earlier, you know, what do you love or hate? What do you want, desire, crave, lust for? What do you seek, aim, or pursue? What are the goals or expectations in your life? What makes you tick? What, what are the foundations of your life? What, what do you hope for, delight in? What really matters to you? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort? escape, pleasure, or security? Who or what do you trust? What makes you get up in the morning? Those kinds of questions, when I ask it, draw out some of those deeper things that I want to hear from you. Now, remember what I said earlier in terms of the conversation we talked about at the beginning. You ask someone those kinds of questions and they've never experienced that before, it's a change in your relationship. And that doesn't come easy for some relationships. Some people will hear you ask those things and they will back away. And therefore, you can just blame me. <laughs> Dr. Deepak told me to ask those questions. I'm sorry. Let's just go ahead and talk about the game. <laughs> but some people, especially those folks who have been in terminally superficial relationships and have never had people or really had people walk into those deeper things in their life, they'll be overjoyed because they've been wanting someone to be a part of their life in some of those deeper things. So I think you'll be surprised if you're willing to ask those kinds of questions. There'll be some people who will be overjoyed to be able to give them access, give you access to their hearts. So here's my challenge for you. We all live in different kinds of relationships. You know, if you picture concentric circles, at the very center are those inner relationships, kind of your inner circle of people. Those are the people who are most likely to have access to your heart. And you go out in different concentric circles. The people at the, the farthest end of it are the most superficial relationships. Well, typically in that inner circle is like a parent or a best friend or a spouse. The people who really know you the best. As you go out to those other levels of, of relationships, 
you can ask people questions that begin to create more depth. Just take any of the questions I mentioned and be willing to ask some of those kinds of questions and see where it goes. Just see how it changes the nature of the relationship. Think, think about some of those relationships in your own life, some of those that live on the outer ends in terms of those superficial circles. If you were to ask someone who lives at a more superficial level of relationships some of those deeper questions, that might change the nature of the relationship you have with them. Now, in college, I had this reputation of asking people about their life stories. <laughs> so here I was, I grew up in New Jersey, but I was going to college in Washington, D.C., and I'd often hitch rides with friends as we were driving back to the Northeast. Uh, and, and I'd get into the car, and I would say to them, okay, we got four to five hours in the car trapped with one another. Go ahead and tell me your life story, and tell me in as much detail as possible, and I'll ask you questions all along the way. And I was surprised how often people would say to me at the end of that car ride, you probably know more about me than most of the people in my life. Well, ask someone about their story. Just ask someone to tell them, tell you their story. And ask them a few simple common sense questions and then begin to press in to some most significant events in their life. You'll be surprised how that begins to change the nature of the relationship. So that's my challenge to you. Take some time and think about someone who, if you ask these kinds of things, it would change the nature of the relationship. And then go out there sometime this month, the next time you're hanging out with them, and go ahead and ask one of those questions and see what you get from them. And, and don't, don't give up if it doesn't seem to go anywhere. Pray, have patience, and then circle back again later at another time. And keep trying until you get access to their hearts. Matt Smethurst, for many years edited for the Gospel Coalition, now he's a pastor out in Richmond. Matt and Megan, his wife, uh, years ago was, were, were at HBC, and he was doing premarital counseling with me. And as he was doing premarital counseling, and then they got married and officiated their wedding, and they stayed in D.C., and they got jobs in Virginia, Matt would describe to me the long and horrific commute back into D.C. after a long work day. And typically he would ask his wife, how was your day? And what would she do? She would describe the, the basic details about the things that she did that day. And he realized, I don't really have much access to her heart right now. So he started asking her on the drive back, not just how was your day, but tell me about your heart. And I thought, wow, that's a great question, especially for a young husband I was a little surprised, like, Matt, how did you know how to communicate like that? Ah, well, Matt grew up with three sisters. <laughs> and his sister taught him how to communicate well. And his wife was the beneficiary <laughs> of all those years of learning how to have deeper conversations with people. Well, you know, the next time you're with someone, ask them, how's your heart today? And they may go, what do you mean? And then you begin to pull out your notes and say, well, let me explain to you what the heart is. <laughs> and then begin to ask them more in-depth questions. Change the nature of your relationship and begin to work at going after people's hearts. That's all I got for talk two. Want to do a few questions and think about the nature of pursuing people's hearts. Any questions for Deepak on pursuing people beyond the ordinary small talk to the person who they are, their heart? Any questions? Sheila Lacks. Okay, my sweet husband is usually the beneficiary of my questions. My name is Sheila. A lot of people, and I, and I, I hate to typecast, but I, I'm about to. A lot of people just don't want to share that. You know, um, after 46 years, I'm not sure I'm quite there with my husband, who we're still married to at the moment, but maybe not after this morning. <laughs> but, you know, how do you, I mean, do you ultimately realize that some people just not, don't want to share that much depth about their lives? Yeah, it's a great question, Sheila. A lot of people don't want to, have never been trained to, have never experienced a culture where, where that, that has been asked of them. So, yeah, you pray, you be patient, you love on them. But interestingly, the times where I feel like when people are closed off, this changes fairly quickly, 
is when they go through significant suffering. Because what, what happens is suffering peels back the layers because you're forced to face up to more ultimate questions in a way that in the superficial nature of life, you don't experience. So that's where I usually say, like, pray, be patient. Try every once in a while, you know, throw out a question, see what you get. If you don't get anywhere, then keep loving on them. And then wait for the Lord to bring those circumstances because it, 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 it inevitably I've seen time and time again where I haven't been able to get into someone's life and it's often when they're in suffering in a hospital. That's why I get to the hospital because that conversation is probably going to produce more for me than I'm able to get out of them in the last five to ten years. I think too it's also framing the question. So you can really weird people out if you just literally go, hi, my name is Blake. How's your soul this morning? <laughs> like, that's just weird. Paul doesn't talk like that. I mean, it's just, no. Um, I think if, if you have a, a long-standing relationship with someone or you've built some kind of context, you're not just a total stranger off the street, I think you could, you could frame it differently. And so instead of saying, tell me about your heart, it, nine o'clock tonight. My heart is tired. I want to go to bed. No, no, it might be the next time you see John or anybody angry about something. The jugular comes out. They throw something down. Maybe mention, hey, I noticed you were really angry about what you saw on TV. Why did that make you so angry? What you're doing is you're just observing something that was obviously meant something to them, or they were passionate, or when they saw the grandchildren, they saw, you saw a tear well up. I can see it makes you so happy to spend time with your grandson. And so you just kind of lean into what they're already doing instead of like putting them under a hot lamp going, tell me your innermost, darkest, even romantic moments for me, honey. You know, it just, it's just not going to, it's just going to weird a lot of people out. So I think you got to know who you're talking to, the relationship, and just take what you can get. God's made us all so different. Uh, Americans were loud, proud, and, you know, other parts of the world are not. And I think Christians have to have a little bit of charity that God made us all different temperamentally. And uh, I think that's a part of the way we learn how to show patience and love. Um, so Yeah, that's a great, great answer. In fact, when you think about it, a lot of those devotionals that I gave out, the issues that show up, anger, chronic illness, you know, all, all kinds of versions of problems that we face in the Christian life, create circumstances which often give us access to people's hearts. And, you know, I, I'll enter into just a pretty normal relationship and say things like, hey, I just want to get to know you better. <laughs> so let's, let's do more than just talk about the game. And, and that kind of tees them up to, to, for the questions I'm about to ask them. And, uh, and, and wh whether it's just simply not just saying, okay, tell me about how your marriage is going, but tell me what are the things that you're scared about in your marriage? Tell me your worst fears in regards to your marriage. Well, okay, that starts to get some of those deeper things out for me. Other questions? Over. Cassidy? What encouragement would you have for those who aren't accustomed to answering those kinds of questions and maybe they want to, but they don't feel equipped and they're not in a season of suffering? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I first always pray um, because part of this requires self-awareness of your heart. Second is patience. If, you, if, if you're not very self-aware of your own heart, it's going to take some work. So the excavating work of digging out the heart since there's a depth variable, being patient to begin to consider that. But if you pray that the Lord gives you greater insight and understanding, you should begin to expect that the Lord can do that. Uh, and then number two, get around people who are willing to ask the questions that can help you begin to understand it. So there, there are good question askers. You, you know who they are in your life. Some of them are incredibly annoying to you because they ask those kinds of questions. <laughs> so, but, but if you're willing to be uncomfortable and put yourself around them, they're willing to probe your hearts and help you learn to open up about what that's like. Great question. Any other questions? Casey. Um, so what about, I guess I'm thinking how to answer or how to phrase the question. Um, 
when talking about getting to someone's heart, like for an adult and asking questions to adults, I feel like that's a little bit easier in the sense of what to ask. If you're doing that to a three-year-old yeah. or a one-year-old, do you have any resources or encouragement on how to get to their heart without saying, Silas, what's wrong with your heart? Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, well, Paul Tripp's book has a whole theology of the heart in there. He does a really good job. Jeremy Pierre's book um, on the, 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 the dynamic heart is like a whole book on this. It's not just a chapter in thinking through it. He goes in much more in depth in thinking about the, the understanding the heart and this whole heart theology. Those would be two particular resources uh, uh, in, in regards to asking about the heart. They're, they're, um, in regards to kids, the hard thing is you got to do it in a developmentally appropriate way. So how I ask a three-year-old is actually different than a 10-year-old, is different than a 15-year-old, is different than a 25-year-old. And all, all, how, how I'd phrase a question would look different, and my expectations are different. The three-year-old, I'm beginning to actually just teach them about heart language by willing to say, not just, I know you shouldn't hit your sister, but why did you get mad? And they may not know, <laughs> and it, it may be really hard to even begin to think about it, but I want to begin to train them to begin to look at their own hearts, to understand it. Versus, you know, a 15-year-old boy versus a 15-year-old girl. 15-year-old boy will have a harder time understanding the depth of their own heart. No offense. I was a 15-year-old boy too at one point. Versus a 15-year-old girl, man, she'll love to go there. <laughs> like she'll have probably more insight and she'll have more words than you can handle in that moment in, in, in telling you. So there's just going to be a difference in gender, difference in age group in terms of learning, which is why we want to practice. Now, we do try and give some examples. If you go to our website, you go to the Parenting Course Seminar, on the lesson on, uh, on, on, on the heart, we try and give some, lesson, some examples of the kind of things you can say and ask at different age groups um, to begin to feel, uh, get a feel for the difference in the questions. Casey, one thing too, I'm very sympathetic to the question because I'm in the throes of this. Um, Proverbs 23, verse 26, my son, give me your heart. That's his desire. And let your eyes observe my ways. So there's instruction, but then there's imitation. And I think when you're talking about parenting, which is a whole nother workshop in and of itself, um, I think the younger our children are, they're probably paying less attention to what we're instructing them to do and more attention to how we're actually obeying ourselves. And so I think that kind of both and, it's not either or, that's when I've been learning about the nature of the heart. When they can't articulate it themselves, they can't observe your ways. So, which is always the mirror back to yourself. Um, yeah. That's a good word. Any other questions? Charlie. Well, I'm looking at our pastor, and, I'm, and you've got your uniform on, the game's uh, you know, on the line, and you're streaking down the left sideline. You've got five yards to go, and you're about to get taken down. But you're big and strong, so you stiff-arm the guy coming at you, and you score. So that's a bad analogy. But many times, and I've papered people in and out of my office over the years because I'm sensitive to this, that Americans have a way of saying, how you doing? And I can say, well, I've got cancer. I got two years today. Well, good to see you. I hope you do okay. And they're gone. <laughs> you know, we do that. And I've asked people, especially I think a, a Japanese patient was in there. And I said, what do you do on the street? You say, how you doing? Well, they have, they have a way of saying a phrase that says, hello, old man. I honor you. I hope you have a good day. But I don't know what other cultures are like us. How you doing? But it means nothing. Or there's a tone of voice that can say, well, how are you doing? And there's such a subtlety in that, and I, you know, I've, I've many times in church, and how you doing? What well, means nothing, it, but it, it's, they don't mean anything negative by it. It's just it's it's a cold, stiff arm sort of saying, "Leave me alone," and we do that too often. So, and I, and I don't, I don't come back and say, "Fine, how are you?" I just either ignore it or say, "Howdy," you know, like Arkansas. So, 
But that's an interesting thing. That's a stiff arm, like, leave me alone. How you doing is a cold response, and many cultures don't do that. So I, I, if, if, in your experience with your background, uh, you, so you know what I'm talking about. So it's how we greet each other casually, and it can be so cold sometimes, yeah. and it turns us off. Yeah. Well, yeah, like, you know, if, if, if typical Sunday morning when somebody says, how are you doing? And most often you hear people say, I'm fine, how are you? Something like that. If I were to say, like, I'm struggling with cancer, my wife hates me, my teenager suicidal, I think I'm going to get fired, they'd be like, oh, man, you got to call Deepak, you got issues. <laughs> I mean, that would be shocking, wouldn't it? <laughs> that, that's what Blake was talking about earlier. That would be weird <laughs> for someone to just lay it out there. And yet, what do I want? What I want is people who are hurting in church to have a safe place to be able to tell someone that they're not doing well. The last thing you want is someone's life to be a wreck and they just put on a mask on on Sundays. So I'm, I'm looking for somewhere in between because there's a place for small talk. There is a place for that because small talk leads us to more depth. But part of what I want you to do is begin to ask, do I even know how to ask the questions to go after more depth? And what do you do? You build relationships. You build relationships where you have more trust. And when you get to that place where there's more trust, then you ask some of those hard things. But there are times in life where, you know, it, it, it's, it's hard because I don't know the person that well, but I, I have a pretty good sense based on what I know that they're not doing that well, and so i got to ask. It sounds like you're probably not doing that well, and I'm a fellow member and I love you. Just talk to me. Tell me how you're doing and give space for hurting people to be able to speak up. That's hard. Uh, so I don't want to stiff arm them with all the superficial talk. I want to create space for superficial talk because you can't kick that out. That's oftentimes when I do this talk, people will come back and like, well, can we do any small talk? Yeah, of course you can. That's how we survive. <laughs> and yet small talk is a platform for us to get to greater depth. And I want to learn how to do that in terms of those conversations. So great that you initiate with folks uh, the way you do, take people out for lunch, ask them those kinds of things. Just don't put up with the superficial. Try and dig in and see where you go. Pastor Ben. One more question and we'll take a break for our last talk. What do you do if, if someone is, uh, like you've, you've tried to confront them perhaps and uh, they Let's say it's a family member, all right, and they just don't want to go there, but they want they want they don't want to cut off the relationship, but they just want to keep it in like a superficial level. So basically, they say, "Hey, we want to hang out with you, but we don't want to talk about like deep heart issues. Like we want to we want to have a relationship, but let's just keep it on the superficial level." Yeah. Uh, what, what would you, what advice or counsel would you give to someone in that situation? Yeah, well, let's, let's do different categories of people. Family, well, you're, you're usually not going to abandon family. <laughs> and family relationships are complicated. They're not as straightforward as often other relationships could be. And so you, what do you do? You just keep loving on them. You keep persevering. But you make sure they understand that when they're ready, you want to have that conversation. And so you stay involved in their life. And that's where, the, as, as answering your question, that's where patience is required. It's like, I, I, I can, I mean, I'm an external processor and I'm an extrovert. Like, let's have the conversation. Let's get it done now. <laughs> let's, let's, let's get through this thing right now. Uh, and yet I've had to learn a lot of patience because people are often not ready at that moment. So I pray, have patience, keep loving them, and pray that the Lord would create the circumstances. But also ask later on hey, I, I left it alone. I just want to see if you're okay or ready to talk about it now. Be willing to come back to it at other points. And, and guided by prayer and counsel of others to have wisdom and know when. But then take people, say, for like church members, someone who's suffering, same kind of things. Maybe they're not ready to talk about some of their things. Well, patiently be a part of their life. You know, continue to be engaged as any way you can and pray that the Lord would open up the door. Someone who's in unrepentant sin is a different story. That's, that's, I'm going to put that in a separate category where, no, actually, you don't have a choice. <laughs> like, your, your, your life is about to go over a cliff. And so we have to be able to have some conversations in order for the sake of your own spiritual good. 
So there, I want to reserve a category for folks regarding whatever kind of sin they're in, especially if it's unrepentant and they're not willing to deal with it, that there are some conversations in our life that have to happen. And unfortunately, I need to force them. And, and unfortunately, in my job, I'm often on the front line of seeing the messiest things and also seeing the people who don't want to deal with it. So we've got to navigate some kind of territory in between. My mom and dad, I'm not going to say any of the details, but I had some difficulties with my mom and dad for 15 months from 2016 to, or 2015 to 2016. It was probably one of the, it was the hardest situation I've ever had with my parents. Could not figure out for the life of me what the deal was. I'd ask questions. I'd call. We were long distance. And then there came a point about 15 months later. I mean, I used to share this stuff with you guys on staff. I yeah. mean, first question he asked when we got off the plane, hey, how's your relationship with your parents? You know, it's still so fresh from years ago. Yeah. And today it's wonderful. But there came a point they came up to D.C. And I said, in my, it, I don't know what got us to this place, but I told my mom and dad, I'm done with the superficial stuff and not talking. You're not going back to Georgia until we hash everything out in this living room. I've got kids taken care of. The doors are shut. It's time to lay it on the table. So three hours later, we did. And uh, it was hard. I hope to never relive that with my parents again. And our relationship has only been better since. And that doesn't always happen. But there there did come a place where... I want a relationship with my parents, but there was no hope of it ever getting better unless we really said some hard things to each other. Well, and that's a great example in the sense of a lot of people are not willing to do what Blake did. They stay on the other end of it. And you even think of like family feuds. I've heard of family feuds where people don't talk to each other for years. They don't, they're not willing to deal with one another. And it just stays that way because no one has the courage to say, let's work this out. Or even better, we're Christians we're supposed to reconcile. We shouldn't live this way. Uh, so, you know, being willing to have the hard conversation, initiate, take responsibility.